Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present two Democratic candidates for the state legislature from the 30th Legislative District. Join us for a conversation with Jamila Taylor and Representative Jesse Johnson. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, July 7th. Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephan Cox. I host the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. My thank you to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. A special welcome to Senator Claire Wilson. And thanks to all of you for joining us, whether you are uh, joining us live tonight or you're listening via the podcast or you're listening on one of the terrestrial radio stations here in Washington that carries the podcast. We are so glad that you could join us. Tonight, we're going to be speaking with two tremendous candidates for representative in the 30th legislative district. This is a district that includes the cities of Federal Way, Des Moines, Auburn, Algona Pacific, and Milton, as well as parts of unincorporated King County. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be devoting a half an hour to each candidate. We are first going to be speaking with Jamila Taylor and then with Representative Jesse Johnson. We received a ton of questions from viewers ahead of time, and I've tried to work them into our program. We will do our best to get to some questions that, that you have tonight. So if you would care to, to ask any questions, kindly enter that into the chat bar. And with that, we will meet our first candidate. Jamila Taylor is an attorney and small business owner who is an appointee to the Federal Way Human Services Commission and is on the board of the Judicial Institute. Formerly, she was statewide advocacy counsel for the Northwest Justice Project and has worked for numerous community advocacy organizations, including the Seattle Youth Violence Prevention Initiative. And she is currently running for representative in position one. This is a seat that is vacated by Mike Pelicciotti, who is currently running for state treasurer. Jamila Taylor, it is such a pleasure. Welcome tonight. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time and attention tonight. Well, so, you know, there's so much to discuss. And I think the place to start would be by talking about uh, some of these issues that are coming up right now through the lens of, of racial equality because I think, and equity, because I think it touches on so much. So let's start, about, uh, start talking about the impact of the pandemic. We know that COVID is hitting BIPOC communities disproportionately harder, both in terms of infection rates, in terms of economic impact. How do you think about this problem? I'm, I, I believe that the pandemic has touched every part of our lives. And as we have seen with the um, disproportionality of the health outcomes that were already a challenge prior to the pandemic, the pandemic just brings it to light for everyone to see. It lays bare for the community to see. When you have folks who are in industries where they're essential workers, so they have you know contact with folks who may be um, carriers for the the condition, the disease. Um, they we have folks who are in positions of being you know bus drivers and home care aides and all kinds of um, positions where they just don't have options to work in a socially distant way from people. And so they're, they're at higher risk. And then, you know, historically, African-Americans in particular, and I'll speak from, you know, the community I come from, um, have out health outcomes that are related to the disparities uh, around um, heart disease, obesity, and um, outcomes that are also kind of connected to the environment. So if you think about out um, areas where they put, um, you know, smokestacks and um, all kinds of pollutants in the air that causes people to have uh, asthma 
then you you are going to have folks who are more vulnerable to a lung condition or the condition that is you know really manifests itself with the pandemic and so it it really um impacts where um, folks are able to access healthcare. It access um, employment. So when you saw all of those jobs, um, you know, temporarily disappear, um, there's a disproportionate number of African Americans who are in those positions. And so if they lose their jobs and they lose their health insurance at the same time, you know, what do we do with these pre-existing conditions when they want to get back into the employment status or employment roles? Right. So, you know, you're talking healthcare inequity in addition to job insecurity, there are inherent environmental issues, as you mentioned, and so much more. How do you feel the legislature could see and address this problem through the lens of racial equity? Well, first and foremost, we have a big challenge that's coming up that the the um, moratorium on evictions is like the next major bubble that we have to address. Um, a lot of folks um, were able to get and keep their housing much longer, even though they weren't working, they're on, um, uh, they're on uh, unemployment and other things to help them fill in the gap. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they've been paying their rent fully. So we are going to need to come up with solutions and resources that help folks stay in housing. We need to make sure that housing security is a top priority, which obviously is going to disproportionately affect um, African-Americans and other BIPOC community members. And so it's essential that we start there, like housing first. We have to have the housing first as a priority. Yes. And I think that's something that the legislature is aware of and ideally will take up in 2021. I would also like to talk uh, about police accountability, uh, also Mm -hmm. through the lens of of racial equity. And I want to get your thoughts on hashtag defund the police. And and this actually is we'll frame this around a question from Lana, who just asked your thoughts about defunding the police and qualified immunity. Um, Hashtag defund the police has been interpreted in a number of different ways, but broadly it means to draw down police budgets and change the way that policing is done, uh, possibly moving the, the, the money to different areas of the budget. What sort of changes to policing would you personally like to see in the 30th LD? Well, first and foremost, I would like to see more resources that are in prevention intervention services. Uh, And so when we're thinking about defunding the police, we're not saying eliminating police departments. As a public interest attorney, I've worked with crime victims and all day long, we need police to intervene in, you know, significant crime issues, especially when you're talking about domestic violence. Um, police um, are actually at most risk of harm in when they are intervening with domestic violence um, calls at, at people's homes. So we need to look at demilitarization of the police. So do, do they really need uh, more items that make them more disconnected from community? We need to make sure that we have independent police boards with subpoena power. Um, the voters a few years ago, um, statewide voted uh, overwhelmingly for I-940, which was you know, more training for police officers on first aid, mental health, and then of course, de-escalation, de-escalation. So how do we engage the, com- the police in our community in a different way? Um, but we want them to be used as a last resort. And so there are programs that are very successful, for example, in Eugene, Oregon, which is, um, has a program called Cahoots. Um, where they send out mental health workers to de-escalate a situation 
And then if it escalates to a point where a police intervention is absolutely necessary, they will do so. So we're sending police out to calls that are really mental health and social calls, not necessarily law enforcement needed. So we, we need to think differently about where our priorities are as a community lie. And that means that, you know, we definitely need to continue to make investments in education. It's constitutionally mandated. We need to have um, programs for young people. We need to have programs for families. I mean, when when you have families that um, have two and three jobs, like a parent has two and three jobs, they can't be home with their children. They can't go to the after school sports and the other activities that help our communities stay engaged and stay in positive directions. And and so we really need to look at these investments for community rather than expenditures. And, and so if we make those investments, then we will have a healthier, thriving community. Yeah, investing in community, the absolutely vital. You also mentioned your work with victims of crime, and I want to get to that in a substantial way in a, in a little bit. But uh, I will just ask you, you know, there's a lot of concern about who should be holding the police accountable. At the municipal level, we have, you know, we've, we've seen some stumbles there, and we certainly have seen a lot of discussion around uh, the federal level with consent decrees and things like that. And I would just love to get your opinion of how you see the state government's role in holding police accountable. Well, I, I think in the first level it can do is legislate that there will be independent police boards and create the standards by which these boards will be populated by community members. And it's it's not something where you simply have citizens only. I think it's going to be a mix, kind of in a similar situation where the com, um, the community police uh, commission that's hap- is available in Seattle, where you have experts from the community, community advocates as well as law enforcement on that board. But you also need to have an accountability piece where there's subpoena power, there, there's an ability to really hold those police departments um, responsible for ensuring that they are you know, providing the top quality policing services for our community. And, some, and we've seen that you know, just leaving it up to the police to police themselves so far isn't working very well. And I think we need to do something different. And we cannot have a new normal when we get out of this pandemic. We must have new possibilities in all aspects of our lives. And police accountability is no different. I want to talk about your professional life. As I mentioned, you work with victims of crime and domestic violence. On your webpage, you talk about, quote, partnering and collaborating with prosecutors, criminal defense attorneys, community-based organizations, and other advocates seeking to end the cycle of crime victimization. I wonder if you could talk briefly about that work and, and how it's different from other approaches. Well, as a public interest attorney working in legal aid and working with the civil legal needs for crime victims, and specifically, most uh, significantly, um, working with domestic violence survivors, and some of them, some of the domestic violence survivors are also involved in the criminal justice system. So there's there's challenges there, um, and so I would receive referrals. My team would re- receive referrals both from prosecutors, public defenders, from um, private citizens. And what what that's common is that um, the survivors wanted to be uh, relieved from and, and escape from the domestic violence that they are encountering. So they want to be safe. They want their children to be safe. They want to be safe from the harm that is being caused um, on them. And, and one of the challenges that a lot of survivors have is how do they escape? And, and the, the most dangerous part of someone who's trying to escape a domestic violence situation is when they're actually making moves to leave the home. So that that, that is an incredibly 
challenging time for a survivor. And so many of the survivors are looking for resources that are not the police making uh, an arrest because sometimes they they are still connected to um, their abuser because they are that abuser could be the the other spouse um, or the parent of the children. So they and and I've had cases where I've had. Um, domestic partners, same-sex domestic partners. Um, I've had, you know, you know traditional or the, the historically um, gender-based violence where it's the husband versus the wife and boyfriend versus the girlfriend. And in all situations, they want to be relieved of the pain and anguish that they're going through. They don't want to be unsafe. And those require um, services that are beyond police intervention. So it's housing. It's um, resources for them to get back on their feet, to be financially independent. And financial abuse actually happens a lot and keeps folks in um, their situation. So like the why I stayed hashtag is a real thing. Folks are in these relationships much longer than people realize because they have to um, find ways to strategically get out of the domestic violence. And then most recently, I I participated and assisted with legislation to um, reduce abusive litigation. So the survivor leaves their um, their circumstance, um, but then the abuser moves all of their, their angst, their anger towards the, um, the victim into the court system. And so they haul them back into court over and over on frivolous, frivolous motions so that the, the, the survivor possibly loses their job, loses their um, access to childcare and other resources that they've needed to be independent from the abuser. And, and so we're, what we're trying to do is keep abusers from um, overtaking our legal system with these, these uh, frivolous um, motions and frivolous claims in family law especially. Yeah, I mean, it's a great approach. And, you know, I will also bring into our discussion the fact that we've seen a dramatic rise in domestic violence due to COVID. Um, yes. Representative Roger Goodman uh, of the 45th recently talked about it. So you're talking about reducing uh, abusive uh, litigation as a piece of legislation. I'm wondering if there are other parts of your approach in, in the work that you do that you see coming together with other legislative approaches. Well, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, one of one of the things we have to look at is, and you know, housing security and housing uh, uh, availability for survivors who are trying to escape. So we need the transitional housing, and then we need to be able to get the survivors into resources that allow them to be financially independent. So that that might mean that they need to be retrained, or they need um, additional support from childcare resources as they are trying to get into employment where they can't be in the home and uh, take care of their young children. Um, the other challenge is, is that, you know, there has been difficulty around enforcement of um, uh, the surrender of weapons. When an, an abuser has been um, through the adjudicated process, and, you know, and a domestic violence protection order is entered, they, they have to surrender their weapons, um, and, and in particular their, their firearms. And um, there has been some challenges um, and difficulties with survivors and then prosecutors have had to um, get the abusers to comply. They, they say simply, you know, they send in testimony that, yeah, I've, I've turned in all my weapons and that's not the, the actual case. And so um, there, you know, the legislation to strengthen the ability to retrieve those guns that are not lawful for the abuser to have. It is absolutely unlawful for them to have. So we, we need to close those loopholes and make sure that they are in compliance 
with these orders that have been put into place and, and ensure that the survivors and the community, because there is a tie to mass shootings between, you know, domestic abusers and, um, you know, mass shootings that have happened in various communities. So we, we really want to get the, the guns out of the hands of people who are not allowed to have them. Yeah, I mean, it just touches on on so much. Uh, I want to shift over next and talk about health care. Uh, before we do, I would like to extend a welcome to Port Commissioner Kristen Ong. Welcome to you. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, Jamila Taylor, the, the issue of health care hit you personally. You talk about this on your website, and we talked about this in preparation uh, for tonight. You had a medical emergency in 2012 that put you in the ICU for five days and left you with a ton of medical expenses. And then you also have close family members who have chronic illnesses. I, I'm wondering, how do you think about, in the light of that, how do you think about the problem of getting to single-payer health care in Washington? I mean, we need transparency. It is so confusing. So when I went into the hospital, I was very thankful and prayed to God that I was able to come out of the the situation. I had um, uh, a misdiagnosis that led to acute pancreatitis. And, and I remember it distinctly because it was right when Obama was being reelected. And, and so I was glad that he was still our president when I woke up from surgery. Um, but then, then the challenge of recovery took a lot longer because of the stress of, okay, here's a new bill that's coming in. And even as an attorney, I was confused. Like, wait, here's another bill and another bill and another bill. And I still had to pay rent just like I did before. And now I have to pay these bills. And so those piled up and they added to um, my inability to to feel like I was healing. And so this is something that happened when most of these bankruptcies in the United States are related to medical. And so having a single payer system will help reduce that. Um, that challenge for a lot of families. I, I had decent insurance. I didn't have the greatest insurance, but I had decent insurance and I still had lots of debt that was related to um, that unexpected hospitalization. And we're, we're all like one paycheck away and don't even imagine who's saving money for a, a $50,000 hospital bill that you don't expect you know, to have happen to you. Yeah. I mean, the scenarios are just horrifying. And then adding to that, uh, I think COVID has really exposed just how vulnerable our employer-based health insurance system can be. I want to talk next about something that may catch people by surprise, but this is something that you brought up in our discussion, and that is light rail. It runs Mm -hmm. through your district, and there is concern that I-976 may gut light rail expansion. I would love for you to talk about why light rail needs to be funded, and also how you see it factoring into numerous other issues facing your region. Well, exactly. Light rail, if it stops that um, federal way, meaning it doesn't continue on to Tacoma and then ultimately down to Olympia, um, is it going to be able to be self-sustaining in the future. I mean, because when you're talking about, you know, a major economic driver of light rail, you and you stop just short of the next uh, area, which is Tacoma, and, and you, you're, you're not able to go to Fife, which has a, a new multi-million dollar facility, which has uh, um, um, uh, the Puyallup Tribes um, Casino. You know, th- there was a lot of investment that was made around this expansion. And and the federal way area is not ready 
to host all of the potential traffic. If you're going to get in the car from Tacoma, are you going to stop and throw away or are you going to continue all the way up to Seattle to, to get to your job? Um, especially if there's not enough parking spaces. And we already know right now we haven't a plan for enough parking spaces with light rail. So it has a, a particular impact on um, how we develop um, multifamily housing around light rail. So if we're looking at transportation oriented design and we're not really looking at the, the big picture, um, then how are we going to find families and, and, and singles and individuals who are looking for housing that is, you know, a walkable district. And so how are we going to reduce our carbon footprint if, if our, you know, we, if we continue to gut public transportation projects? And, and, and that, that is just one aspect of I-976. There were projects that are across the state that could be impacted by it. And it's in legis uh, litigation right now. So I'm not even sure what's going to happen until the courts really decide. But the key issue here is, you know, when you're talking about economic recovery, the history has shown us from the economic depression in the 1930s, the economic uh, recession of the 2008, like rebuilding, literally rebuilding our infrastructure is a way to build jobs and build, rebuild the economy. So how do we get people back to work? We have to build things and we have to build them here. But it's almost like we have a social compact right? and that um, with transportation projects, like the, a lot of the rhetoric around the transportation projects, were, which were mostly on um, west of the mountains. Uh, a lot of folks on the east of the mountains are like, we, we don't want to pay for that. We, you know, you shouldn't have this. You shouldn't do that. You know, we're, you're taking from us. When really we could look at it as a social compact, the east of the mountains folks are looking for infrastructure in terms of municipal, um, uh, a municipal broadband so that they can attract more business to their areas and more resources that help support their citizens. So how do we have a win-win situation where we're you know, developing an, an critical infrastructure that both sides of the mountain needs? And how do we you know, have this conversation in a more meaningful way that stops you know, putting blame against each other? Yeah, I think that's that is a really great way to frame it. And also, you know, the, the social compact, I think, is going to really be put to the test when we face our budget shortfall. We're looking at eight point eight billion dollars over the next three years, uh, potentially. And, you know, budgets are a reflection of our values, right, uh, as citizens and certainly for, for our lawmakers. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your process in terms of deciding what you would work to protect in our budget, given the current circumstances. First and foremost, I want to make sure that, you know, families are safe and, and, and housed. I mean, anything that would create um, a more, a more homelessness and, and housing, you know, our housing shortage was already critical prior to the pandemic. Um, so when we're talking about uh, reducing the, you know, government footprint on, you know, the things that are affecting our everyday lives, we need to look at it from a racial equity standpoint and how, you know, working families are going to be affected across the state. Is it going to make folks less able to um, get back onto the economic highway, the, the on-ramp that allows them to become thriving and, and get past this, um, you know, crisis that they have financially? So we have to look at ways that, you know, keep much as much money in the pockets of um, families. And, but that it doesn't mean reduction of taxes. I mean, because, you know, our tax system is so regressive. What we, we need to do is make sure that the resources are there so that they can be tax producers, that they're being able to contribute to our, our system. And, and so that means that we might have to look at ways of, 
you know, upending, you know, folks who can afford to pay more do pay more to ensure that the, the, the budget shortfall is addressed. Um, and again, the priority is making sure that the folks who have the least aren't pushed behind or left behind. Can you get specific there in terms of how you would like to see our very regressive tax system uh, change to make it more equitable? I mean, I, I, I would want to join up with um, Representative Noel Frame in, some, uh, in her bipartisan effort to, for tax reform. Um, so what I would want to do is analyze where are the potential opportunities, and some of it could be capital gains, it could be um, other types of closing loopholes, um, making sure that you know gig economy workers are classified properly as actual employees rather than gig economy workers. Um, one that that doesn't keep us safe, and two, we see how they almost didn't have access to unemployment insurance, and so that again com- completely upend our economy. If we continue to move in this direction where folks are all independent contractors, then we're un- we're not safe. We need to make sure that we are protecting labor rights and making sure that folks have. Um, safe and healthy work environments to go to. Because if you're sick, there's no point in trying to make money. You, you can't make money. And then it causes uh, um, you know, more resources to be pulled from the system when people aren't healthy and able to participate in our economic, so socioeconomic ecosystem. Before I let you go for the evening, I'm going to ask you something that we didn't uh, prepare for, but you're a founding member of an organization called Black Past. And I went to check it out, and it has a lot of great information about black people, the history of black people in the Pacific Northwest. I wonder if you could tell us just very briefly in the time that we have remaining the, about Black Past itself and also about the importance of education right now. So blackpast.org is an organization that provides African-American history, not only in the Northwest, but African-American history across the the, um, globe. So Okay, uh, okay, thank you. Thank you for correcting me on that. Yeah. No, no worries. No, And it was founded by my father, Dr. Quintar Taylor, who is a professor, a retired professor from the University of Washington. And what we had discovered is that a lot of folks, a lot of young people in particular, don't have access to ethnic studies, in particular African-American history. And in this moment with Black Lives Matter and Juneteenth and all these um, initiatives that are helping folks get access to information that they don't have in their school system, Black Pass has been able to fill the gap. I mean, I think uh, just a couple of weeks ago, it was in search engines 60.3 million times, according to Google, because people are looking for information about um, you know, African-Americans, African, folks of the African diaspora, and, and seeing how we have contributed in our part of the American fabric, you, if you know. Oh, my dad would be so excited. I need to get work. <laughs> but, but, but essentially, you know, our contributions have been overlooked. I mean, one of the things that I did with my campaign was uh, do an overview of um, African-American electeds in Washington State. And we've been a part of our um, legislature since 1890. That's since the beginning of statehood. And so the website helps bring that information to everyday audiences from young young and young at heart. That was where I got that information, and I cannot recommend it more. Uh, I learned a lot uh, in that particular section about our state. So it's blackpast.org. And where can people find out more about your campaign? You can go to www.electjamilataylor.com, and I'll put it in the chat for those who are on the call tonight. Um, we're happy to um, uh, 
We would love for more volunteers. We definitely want to do phone banks. We're trying to reach the voters. And, and in this time and day and age, it is critical that we, we um, do phone banking and text banking to reach voters because we can't go door to door. It's just not safe for volunteers. And we want to make sure that our community remains safe. So we have shifted to a digital campaign. Uh, another uh, part of our campaign where we pivoted with the pandemic is launching a series called Neighbor to Neighbor, where I'm connecting everyday people who are the experts of their everyday lives, talking about things that you would talk about on your street corner, on um, at the coffee shop. And, it, and it's about really connecting people on levels that um, help us see how we're in this, this, we're in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And so that level of sympathy and empathy around each other's lived experiences will help us find ways to support each other as we try to get through this crisis. I recommend that too. And I will just say before, when we were doing our, our pre-show work, uh, getting ready for tonight, I mentioned you could do this by yourself. I mean, you, your, your series is just wonderful. It really is. So I, I recommend that as well. I get Jam- excited. I, I love this work. I, I get excited. Yeah, and you're, you're great at it. Jamila Taylor, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me tonight. And we will speak next with Representative Jesse Johnson. He is an educator who has served as representative in position two since he was appointed in January to replace Christine Reeves, who vacated the seat to run for Congress. Previously, he served as a city council member for Federal Way. Representative Jesse Johnson, welcome. Thank you so much for being on tonight. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about what you accomplished uh, in your first session, which was really, really impressive. And I also wanted people to get a sense of what you're preparing for for 2021. But I'd like to start with your assessment of the COVID response, since it's been on everybody's mind. And we know that the pandemic was just starting to take hold as this year's session ended. So there really wasn't a lot of time to respond at the legislative level. But I'm just wondering, as a representative, how do you think about the balance, the, the very crucial balance between public health concerns and economic concerns in response to COVID? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, first, I'll say uh, I want to acknowledge we're on indigenous land wherever we're at and for the viewers watching. And uh, I'll start by saying, I think right now we're experiencing three major crises, uh, crises of public health with COVID-19, a crisis of our economy with mass unemployment and revenue loss, and then a crisis of racism in our institutions. So I think that we have a lot to handle, um, both at the local level, state level, and the federal government. Um, And all three of these crises have something in common. They're rooted in systemic and institutionalized racism. And what that means is, Uh, We have to go and do right by communities that have um, not had the opportunity uh, before uh, to have support, and then that will benefit everyone else. And I think if we start with that mindset, we'll be able to get a lot done. Um, Looking currently, um, we, in Washington State, we have a really difficult uh, road ahead. Um, We just projected that we're about $8.8 billion in lost revenue since COVID began. Uh, So that means our economic forecast uh, is going to be a little bit dire uh, moving forward. And so um, this is impossible to get out of this without some main factors happening. We're gonna have to look at things like progressive revenue. Um, we're gonna have to look at, unfortunately, cutting some social services. And we're also gonna have to look at where in our system can we start from a zero-based budgeting approach so that we can make sure that all of our um, interests are covered as we're moving forward to make sure that people have housing, healthcare, education, and employment. And so I I believe that we have a lot of work to do ahead, and uh, it's going to take all of us coming together 
I really am still holding out hope that we can go back in August for a special session, although that looks unlikely, but I'm holding out hope. So, um, but I think the reason why I'm in this space and the reason why I'm in this office is to fight for injustices in our system. And I think this is a perfect time to do so. I, I think most people listening would agree. You know, as I was speaking about with Jamila earlier, uh, the issue of justice and equity touches on pretty much everything, uh, including all the things that you just ran down. And I have some specific questions for you about that, but I want to stay with COVID for just a moment because the pandemic will almost certainly be with us when the 2021 session starts. And I'm wondering right now in advance, are you working on anything specific as a legislator in response? Well, um, I am. I think, you know, one of the things that I'm working on is how can we increase testing and contact tracing capacity? at the local level. Um, in the last few months, I've noticed that families don't wanna go into the clinic because uh, they've been told for months now that it's dangerous with COVID. And so we need to increase like mobile testing capacity. Uh, I was able to try that out through my own clinic a couple months ago and see how that process works. And it's pretty efficient. Um, I also think we have to look at our economic development and how we're gonna help businesses transition to this uh, digital space. Um, so that's going to it's going to have to be a new digital service model for a lot of businesses. And what is this economic relief going to look like? How can we recirculate dollars in our local community rather than at the state level that really get it to the small businesses? Uh, for example, in the 30th district where I reside, our businesses are 85 percent, uh, 25 employees or less. So they're pretty small businesses. So we got to make sure that those dollars are recirculating back in our local community. And then finally, education is going to look really different. Um, tech equity is an issue. We don't have a lot of households that have broadband access and access to hotspots. So we're going to have to increase that. And I think that'll help this transition to more of an online platform for education uh, starting in the fall. So I would say those three areas, healthcare, economic development, and education are what I'm most focused on. You mentioned that we may or may not get the special session over the summer. Um, as I mentioned with Jamila, we are expecting an $8.8 billion budget shortfall over the next three years. You mentioned that we're going to see probably some cuts in social services. We have heard pushback on, quote unquote, austerity budgets. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. And, and in that light, are there things that you would work specifically to protect? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, that's a good point. And that's the last thing that we want to do is cut any social services because um, that's usually what goes first in a pandemic like this. Uh, however, at, we know that in this pandemic, uh, working families, low-income families, particularly marginalized families, um, have been the most impacted. And we already have a system where economic power is acted in the hands of a few or regardless code. So looking at looking at our tax code right now, uh, one of the things that is an issue with it is a lot of our corporations um, are kind of getting away with unnecessary or outdated tax loopholes um, that were put in place before we had a major tech boom in our region. And so corporations are not having to pay um, what the working the average working family is paying based on um, annual income. And so I think we need to look at our tax code um, but we can also do that, as I was saying earlier, through a zero-based approach, which is working across the aisle to make sure that as we're doing that, um, we also look at our spending and look at it through an equity lens. So although we're cutting some social services, it's not going to uh, cut who's being hurt the most. So um, I think we're going to have to do both together. 
You mentioned corporate loopholes. This comes up a lot when we hear talk about addressing uh, the regressive tax system that we have here in the state. Um, you and I discussed this a little bit when uh, when we spoke uh, in preparation for this, and we talked about some of the changes that you would like to see happen in 2021, uh, and, and we especially hit on what you think has a realistic chance of passing. So I'll just ask you bluntly, what are your thoughts on capital gains passing in the 2021 session? I think for the first time in a long time, we actually have an opportunity to have it passed. Um, I know I've talked with the Speaker of the House and she's like, we could have passed this for the last seven years in the House. It's the Senate side where the votes aren't there. But I think in this election where we have a record number of um, progressive candidates, a record number of candidates of color running in the Senate, I think we can get it passed. Um, But I think it's going to take everyone coming together and also compromising working across the aisle, as I mentioned, on a budget that's also zero based because um, that's where we can get some compromise, I think, on the more conservative side. Yeah, I I know that uh, a lot of us at Indivisible are working very hard to extend the Democrats' margins in the Senate for all the reasons that you just hit on. I want to talk about something that we touched on earlier, and it's something that's on everyone's mind, which is racial equity and racial justice. I would love it if you could just share your thoughts generally about everything that we've seen over the last month in response to the police killing of, of George Floyd and others. Mm. Well, um, I'll, I'll speak personally, but I'll also speak as a member of the Black Members Caucus. Uh, this has been an unprecedented time. Um, there's countless names to say of people that have been killed by the police. Um, what I can say is it starts with community. I think we're going to have to Uh, We can't do anything without community in this process. And so I stand in solidarity with all our communities coming together to do some of this heavy lifting on the ground and organizing some of our ideas. But I think we're also going to have to get buy-in from um, working directly with law enforcement because the reality is law enforcement is not going to go away anytime soon. And so we need to work with them on some comprehensive and common sense approaches to this. I've had conversations with WASPIC and Uh, the Paternal Order of Police, as well as community advocates, Black Lives Matter. And there's a lot of ideas out there that we actually can't agree on. Um, Some are not going to come easy. It's not going to be an easy path, but we definitely can find some common ground. And there's others that they're not going to agree on that I still think we should push forward. And so I'm more than happy to talk through those, um, what's currently circulating. But um, I think think we're going to have to work with everyone to get this done. Uh, anytime soon. Yeah, you mentioned that you met with 85 community advocates, including Black Lives Matter leaders. Um, I understand that there are 10 different bills that are in consideration. Are there any that you can that you'd like to share with us the details on? Yeah, so uh, so a couple that I would like to see passed, I think, can be um, not as well. Though I'll be kind of controversial, but I think um, we can get past even if we have a special session. Would be a, a criminal. Uh, independent board. And WASPIC has already shared some ideas of having community involvement on that board. But taking the, taking the power out of the hands of police when we're looking at use of deadly force or any type of personal injury or misconduct. Uh, so that criminal uh, independent board would be um, led by the attorney general's office as well as the governor's office and appointed members from community to be a part of that. And so I think it would almost be similar to when you're picking juries for jury duty. Um, You have to have people that are neutral and impartial, but you also have to have people that understand policy and legal. And so I think that's that's one that we can get done. Um, I'm hoping to push forward um, 
a bill to mandate community oversight and accountability boards at every department, including the Washington State Patrol, which is obviously the legislature's jurisdiction. And that would also involve community in that process. It's something that I was pushing for on the Federal Way City Council for two years and obviously uh, couldn't get the votes to do it. But I think at the state level, we have an opportunity to get that through. Um, I was happy to see that the City of Federal Way banned chokeholds um, as a police department. I think that's also something we can take statewide. Um, and then also I would say uh, a couple other bills that I know that the um, community advocates would like to see happen would be how we are demilitarizing police in public spaces uh, and what that looks like when we do have protests. And uh, a lot of these tactics are used that may not be necessary, like pepper spray or tear gas or a lot of those tactics that maybe we can find some a little bit less um, violent alternatives for. And then another one would be looking at this funding piece, and that's going to take us looking at collective bargaining and arbitration with the unions. Uh, we also have to look at qualified immunity. That's a big piece. So I was happy to see that one state passed that in Colorado, um, but even even their bill, it's not going to be implemented until 2023. So uh, they still have three years to make that process look a certain way. So so there's a lot of different opportunities there, but I think the community is definitely uh, demanding change soon. And I think that we're going to get it done this year. I would imagine that I can speak for pretty much everybody listening or viewing right now and, and just say, thank you. Um, you're, you're giving a sense of hope right now where I think that's really sorely been lacking. A question that I've been asking uh, in these town halls since the George Floyd murder by police is what does state level legislature level accountability look like? And you're giving us a good insight into that. And so um, so thank you for that. As I mentioned, I want to talk about some legislation that you got passed this year, specifically around education and children's issues. Uh, you yourself are an educator and you wrote four bills that got passed into law in your first term, which is just exceptional. So you prime sponsored HB 2711 and that addressed the needs of homeless students and foster care students. Can you tell us a little bit about this bill? Yeah, so uh, one of the things I saw in working in education is uh, we don't do enough for our kids in foster care or experiencing homelessness. And it starts with, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like making sure that people have housing, transportation, food to get to school and be ready to learn. And that's currently not happening. So I think we need to work directly with McKinney Vento and other organizations to make sure that they have that. Uh, this bill will put together a task force for the next six months to look at those ideas and make sure we have policy recommendations by the 2021 session. And so um, on that task force includes like the Mockingbird Society, um, Pacific Education Institute, all these organizations that work directly with these young people and also educators as well and, uh, and young people themselves. And so I'm hoping we can have a good set of policy recommendations for uh, January. You also got HB 2873 passed. This allows families and youth to request family reconciliation services. Can you talk about the importance of this? Absolutely. So this bill um, looks at, currently, one thing I noticed when we're looking at young people in the juvenile system, like a lot of it starts at the home when, unfortunately, when they're young, either their family or somebody they know has went through the court system or some type of litigation and a lot of it is like different, um, you know, different home violent, uh, maybe domestic violence or something like that. And when they're going through these legal processes, young people are not offered any type of mental health treatment by the state. 
Um, with this bill, what it'll do is establish a family reconciliation services model through DCYF to provide um, mental health services, family counseling, uh, training, and, and different uh, conflict resolution for the family so that the child does not have this trauma that lingers and, you know, sometimes even causes uh, them to go into the juvenile system through different measures. So I think we can get families back on track through this. So I'm really proud about that bill because that's something that I've seen working directly with young people that have been impacted by the juvenile justice system. You also passed a bill that uh, was, I think, very impactful, not only for education advocates, but also for climate advocates. This was 2811. This develops a high school curriculum on the environment, basically, um, and it prepares uh, students for careers in renewable natural resources. Uh, it's just just tremendous. Can you, you talk a little bit about that bill? Yeah, so that, that comes through experience working in education again. Um, I've worked in college and career readiness, and um, it's an untapped, I think, industry when we're looking at conservation and maritime, and especially with our access to waterways in the 30th district. I thought it's a great bill to make sure that high school students are learning about uh, their local environment, learning about um, biology, learning about uh, climate change at a young age. Um, because this is their world moving forward, uh, and we have to make sure we're taking care of it, and and also providing access and career pathways into those careers that are good living wage jobs. And so um, I'm happy about that bill because it's going to help them create that kind of pipeline development from the schools into these specific industries. Yeah, it's a very forward-looking bill, and I want to touch on some other things, but I I think I want to ask you about uh, something that uh, we we discussed when we when we prepared, and that is your youth. Um, since you're, you know, you, you've passed something that is so very forward-looking, it's looking to put people into jobs uh, that are really going to be the, the future of employment in the state, most likely. And as of right now, you're the youngest member in the legislature. I believe you're 30, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm just wondering what it means in your mind that there are so few people of your generation in the legislature. And then I, I would just ask you, how do you best use your voice as a representative of your generation's issues? Mm-hmm. Well, what I always tell young people I work with is that they're not just the future, they're the present. They can impact the world right now. And as a policymaker, although we all have a finite amount of time on this planet, we can have infinite impact through the policies that we create and that we implement. And um, it's something that's the reason why I ran for city council is because young people, people of color, working families were not represented in local government. And this is a way that we can make sure that we're, our voices are heard, they're being elevated and they're at the table. And so uh, I'm happy to, to be the youngest currently, but I know we have a lot of uh, some other young folks that are running and, and hopefully they'll take that title away from me this year. Yeah, we've talked to a few of them. <laughs> we're, we're rooting all of you on. So um, I do want to get back to some of the legislation that you worked on. You were a co-sponsor of the Just Cause Bill, which would prevent unjust evictions. This is something that passed the House but didn't make it out of the Senate. Um, I would love to get your thoughts on its chances in 2021. But a larger question, I think, is it seems like getting anything done on affordable housing and eviction and things like that, it's just a real legislative challenge. And I'm wondering why you think that is. You know, it's difficult. Um, to me, like housing, housing is a basic human right. And it goes back to, you know, as policymakers, how can we make it easier for the everyday person to be able to not just survive, but thrive in society. And that's one of the reasons I co-sponsored this bill with Representative Macri. Um, I was happy to champion it on the Federal City Council. 
but it protects our most vulnerable renters and people living in housing, um, making sure that there has to be real cause for eviction and improving the Landlord Tenant Act and relationships requiring landlords to um, basically right now they're just citing any reason to evict someone out of their home. And especially that shouldn't happen during COVID, but um, you know, at any time, if, if people are disproportionately impacted by the current system, and as we're looking at the data, it's people of color, young families, people with disabilities, and that's a, and that's a problem. And I think that we have to look at how can we overwhelmingly impact our system for these people without um, you know, making it more difficult for landlords to do their business, but ensuring more justice is happening along that pathway. And I think that this bill will do that. Yeah, it's it's really a frightening uh, scenario right now. We're looking uh, potentially at just an unprecedented number of evictions. This bill won't likely come to the floor ultimately until the 2021 session. But I'll just ask you again, how do you see its chances uh, for next year's session? I see it. I see it much better. I mean, I think this year, um, you know, the, the the landlords had a pretty good strategy in terms of uh, rebuttal of that bill. But I think um, what we can do is work. You know, we have to do some ground level organizing um, with groups like Washington Community Action Network, um, Housing Alliance, to make sure that um, people see the importance of this bill. I mean, it's 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 an important bill, especially as we come out of COVID, where life is just difficult for the everyday person especially if you're black, brown, or marginalized in some way. And I think that this bill will help um, families feel a, li- a little bit more protection in their homes as they're trying to get back on their feet. The job, you know, the economy is so uncertain right now. And, uh, you know, it'll provide some of those protections that we're looking for. And it's part of, you know, it's part of real equity. Um, equity is providing people what they need when they need it. And right now, our families need this bill to pass. I would like to also talk about homelessness kind of through the same lens I know that this is something that you dealt with as a, a Federal Way City Council member. There have been a number of approaches to the, the homeless the homelessness issue at the municipal level. And I'll just ask you, do you see any redress at the legislative level? And uh, it's such an intractable problem. I, I wonder how you find your way into this issue. Well, um, it's probably the most controversial political issue Outside of public safety, I won't. I'll put guns up there in public safety. I was um, going to try to weave that in there, so put a pin in that. Yes, absolutely. It's been a real difficult issue, and it's because currently homelessness is criminalized in our society. We have to work on decriminalizing it. And um, you know, if you can, you can literally um, be in in a safe, um, stable home life one day, and be on the streets the next day. Um, according to what happens with your job, what happens with your um, your family, what happens with your health, either physical or mental. There's just a lot of things that happen, especially as we're coming out of COVID. And we have to work on decriminalizing it and removing exclusionary laws that are um, banning homeless people from even existing. And, and, you know, some of them, some of them do have some issues, but that doesn't mean that everyone should be left on the street without any support or should be sent to jail, which is what currently our system is telling them is if you're not living in a home or you don't have a home, you don't belong in our, in our city, in our state, and we can't continue to do that. Otherwise, we're going to see the problem intensify, especially, again, as we're coming out of COVID, life is different now, and we're going to have to look at our current uh, discriminatory laws that are perpetuating a status quo system, and this is one of those issues. And so when I was on the city council, I just noticed the 
um, really uh, terrible language that community was using around this issue of homelessness. Not all community, but some in community. And um, you know, I think people are, people are, have a right to their opinion. But my opinion is that we need to look at how we can um, lessen this disparity by making sure that people have housing, um, mental health services. Federal Way in the 30th District, a real lack of mental health services in our city. Um, and you know, and that's the reality. And I think we can do that through the laws that we pass, um, removing statewide bans on um, you know rent control. Uh, freezing property tax rates for people that are just coming out of the system or that are seniors on fixed incomes. There's a lot we can do, and we're going to have to do it. Yeah, unfortunately, I think most of us are familiar with footage of city council meetings, just like you uh, talked about. And, you know, when you were uh, a city council member in, in federal way, you heard a lot of trying to connect the dots between homelessness and public safety. And a number of questions around that. You know, how, how do you frame that problem? Um, many people in federal way are, are quick to equate more police with public safety. This is something that's absolutely been called into question now with hashtag defund the police. How do you unpack this whole problem? So um, I unpack it by listening to everyone's opinion, even the opinion of folks that I don't agree with. Like, I don't agree that more police officers on the streets is going to decrease crime. I don't agree that locking up every person on the street is going to decrease crime. Um, but I do agree with if you run a business, if you own a home and you know, you're know you just living every day and you feel like people are infringing upon your life, um, that government should play, play a role in making that better. And I think that there's ways that we can do it. I think um, one of the things that we have to do is create more public-private partnerships with uh, the social um, uh, services, mental health system, uh, public health, and policing should be reimagined to be a part of that. Like it shouldn't be separate. We we should have a way that we can um, make sure that people are getting the help that they need, and we're providing safety for our communities. But it's going to take reimagining what that uh, partnership looks like, and uh, and that's it's a it's a long and extensive process uh, mm-hmm. with community involvement. Uh, but I think um, it should be localized. It should be. Uh, informed. It should also be, um, you know, it should be something where community feels like they're a part of the process in developing that. And so I think that uh, we can definitely work on that this year. Uh, one of the things that I truly believe that we can do is make sure that people are not locked up for um, minor reasons versus other people getting off on crime, um, um, so to speak, white collar crime. But it's, it, lo- it just looks different, right? And and I think that's that's one of the things that we're seeing is um, plaguing our communities is people are are locked up for um, marijuana possession when it was legalized in 2012. We still have, I believe, I read somewhere, 25,000 black and brown men in Washington State locked up for marijuana possession, um, creating a problem within the families, within their communities, and and that should be changed. And we sh- we should be able to retroactively go back and change that policy. And so I'm excited about the opportunity to look at these policies through a fine tooth comb and look at them through equity lens. And I think we can help our communities when we do that, but we can't continue to criminalize and blame and then push for a system that's not working. 
Yeah, I mean, that takes us right back virtually to where we began. And, you know, I, I, I do hear a note of hope there that this can, uh, a lot of this can be addressed at the legislative level. And so thank you for your thoughts and for your work on that. You know, I'll just ask you briefly, we just have like a minute left, but I will point out something uh, to people uh, that you and I discussed earlier, which is your your faith. Um you grew up going to church in your district. You currently attend New Beginnings Christian Fellowship. You said when we spoke that you noticed a lack of connection between some faith communities and social justice issues. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how your faith informs your work as a leader and as a legislator. Uh, that's uh, I was thinking about this question when we talked about it. You know, um, I, I definitely am a believer. I think that that. Um, my faith is definitely part of the reason why I'm even in this position because I felt called to do it when I ran in 2017 and I felt called to um, go for the appointment this year. And that's kind of how I live my life. But I think that um, one of the reasons I enjoy going to the current church that we go to is because um, we talk about social justice issues um, that are plaguing our communities. And we're not just talking about the plight of the community, but we're talking about solutions and strategies to get us out of this predicament uh, and I learn a lot from um, the people I go to church with, the pastor, um, and, you know, obviously in conversations with my wife and learned a lot. And so I think that we can we can break some of these chains in our community um, where we have these divides. Like right now, race is the current divide that's dividing our country, um, public health. But we can look at it through a different perspective when we meet people through our faith that have different perspectives and really lead with a spirit-based mindset. And that's something that I learned at church um, and that I take with me every day when I work either in the school district or city council or the state or whatever. Well, thank you for all of that. And thank you for your, your very thoughtful answers tonight. Before I let you go, uh, this information is in the chat bar, but for people listening, tell us uh, where people can learn more about your campaign. Yeah, so it's just uh, www.votejessejohnson.com. Well, thank, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. This has really been uh, exceptional. Thanks. I appreciate it, Stefan. Thanks for the viewers that listened in. And uh, vote. Uh, don't boo, vote, as Obama said. <laughs> exactly. Good words to end on. My thanks again to Representative Jesse Johnson and also thanks to Jamila Taylor. Thank you again to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Andrzejewski with Indivisible Tacoma. And a reminder to join us Tuesday, July 14th for a town hall with 10th District Congressional Candidate Beth Dolio. To find out more, you can go to the Washington State Indivisible Podcast community on Facebook. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you next time. Bye.